Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. First of all, happy Thanksgiving. I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing today, you're able to focus on the good things in life. So earlier this fall, I was at a wedding in New York City, and someone asked where I live. I told him I live in Wyoming. There's this pause, and he looks at me kind of funny, and then he goes, So, uh, how do you like it out there? You know, as if he's expecting me to say, I hate it. I told him I love living in Wyoming. And he goes, why? Why? It's a question I get a lot. Why do you love living in a state with perpetual winter, too much wind, and almost no people? There are many, many reasons to love this place. But one of the most tangible is that we're surrounded by beautiful open spaces, miles upon miles of woods and mountains and prairies where we can relax and recharge. Many of these open spaces are public lands, lands owned by the American people. They're there, at least in part, for all of us to use and enjoy. But in return, these places need care and love. And that's where an organization called Parks Project comes in. Parks Project is one of our sponsors for this episode. They're on a mission to leave our public lands better than we found them. To do that, they organize volunteer events and they sell apparel and accessories to raise money for wild spaces in the U.S. and Canada. Everything you buy from Parks Project provides vital funding for a national park or other public lands. Check it out at parksproject.us. And for 15% off your purchase, use the coupon code OUTTHERE at checkout. That's parksproject.us, coupon code OUTTHERE. Thanksgiving is a time for gratitude. But if we're being honest, it can also be a stressful time. Being around people nonstop can be exhausting, even if they're people you love. Many of us find ourselves craving space. But how much space is too much? Today's story comes to us from a woman named Allison Fowle. Back in 2016, she landed a research gig in the Frank Church River of No Return wilderness. It's one of the most rugged landscapes in Idaho and one of the most remote places in the Lower 48. During her summer in the Frank, Allison found what she was looking for, solitude in a wild place. But she also began to question her appetite for alone time. On this episode, she shares her story. It's a story about what it means to be an introvert and about what happens when you have too much of a good thing. I'll let Allison take it from here. It's 11.30 on a Friday night in September, and I'm riding in the passenger seat of my own car. I'm beginning to worry that we should have reached the trailhead by now. Don't worry, I tell Arabelle, my friend who's driving. We're almost there. But she's calm. Much calmer than I am. I've come prepared. 
maybe a little too prepared. We're here on a quick backpacking trip. We left Boise after work and headed straight to the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness to revisit the place where I got lost by myself two years ago. Lost in the wilderness. I lived in the middle of the Frank for 10 weeks. It's the largest contiguous wilderness in the lower 48, an area larger than Delaware. It's full of rugged peaks, deep canyons, and raging rivers. It is a wild, wild place. I was living and working at a research station owned by the University of Idaho. I was a master's student in science communication, and I went to Taylor to work on an essay collection. I was weaving together the history, ecology, and culture of the station and its surroundings. It would have been an extraordinary opportunity for anyone, but it was especially exciting for me. I grew up in New York City, and I had one of the most urban childhoods imaginable. As a teenager, I commuted to school on the subway and went to sleep listening to the sounds of the alleyway beneath my window. Three months in the middle of the Frank was the wildest experience I could imagine, and I couldn't wait. I've always been an introvert. My whole life, I've been ravenous for alone time. I'm the kind of person who happily dines solo in restaurants, who goes to movies by herself, and who only goes shopping alone. At home in New York, I worked hard to create solitude in even the most crowded places. At rush hour in lower Manhattan, a seat on the subway, a pair of headphones, and something to read was all it took to create my own universe. I knew how to be a happy introvert in one of the busiest places on earth. But being in a place where I didn't have to create solitude, where I could just be alone all the time, that sounded amazing. And in many ways, it was amazing. That summer in the wilderness, I spent 10 weeks operating on my own schedule, which for me went something like this. Wake up at dawn, head out to explore or write, come home at dusk and sit around the campfire with the handful of other students at the station. I backpacked to Alpine Lakes, hiked in search of pictographs, and felt the hair on the back of my neck stand up more than once, knowing that a mountain lion must be watching me. When I wasn't backpacking, I slept in a wall tent on the river. I collected currants and learned how to make jam. I hung my laundry to dry on what we often joked was the most remote clothesline in the lower 48. I logged hundreds of trail miles, and I could count on one hand the number of strangers I encountered. I became a more feral version of myself, and the experience buoyed me. But at the same time, something surprising was starting to happen. Up until my summer in the Frank Church wilderness, I had believed my capacity for solitude was infinite. It was hard to imagine that I could have too much alone time. Now that I was here with the sparse company of the station managers and a handful of other student researchers, there were moments when I actually started craving people. I missed my friends and family, and I started counting down the days until the plane that delivered our mail each week returned. There were mornings in the Frank when I'd look out the window and see hikers on the trail across Big Creek. I'd put my coffee down and scramble to grab my binoculars. It's not like I was expecting anybody in particular, or even thought that I would recognize them. I just missed people. Staring at strangers through binoculars, 
I'd remember my careful avoidance of people as a New Yorker. I started to wonder if maybe the Frank was an overcorrection for Brooklyn. But it wasn't until the end of my stay that my love of solitude was truly put to the test. When my time in the Frank was finally drawing to a close, I had a choice on my hands. I could get a flight back to civilization from the station, or I could hike to a different airstrip and get picked up. The wilderness is huge, and there are no roads into it, so the Forest Service has a dozen or so public airstrips where people and supplies can fly in and out. They're basically just small, grassy runways in the middle of the woods, just big enough for tiny propeller planes to land on. I was allowed to get picked up from any of them. I could fly out from the station where I'd been living all summer, or I could hike to somewhere new and get picked up there. I immediately thought of hiking to the official wilderness boundary. I liked the symbolism of stepping from one version of myself into the other, backcountry me into front country me. Once I started thinking about hiking out of the Frank, I couldn't let go of the idea. It was only 35 miles, well within the range I was used to covering. Plus, I wanted to say goodbye to this place. Summer in the Frank had been a transformative experience. There was so much ahead of me that I knew would be exhausting, finishing my masters, interviewing for jobs, and living in a city again. A solo trip out would be like a good dose of preemptive medicine, and it would be my last chance for some sweet alone time. So I made a plan. Three days, 35 miles, an easy pace. I'd get to see a new part of the Frank before meeting our pilot, Walt, for a flight out. I took off in good spirits, proud of my independence. I was comfortable in this place, secure in my footing, and confident in my identification of birdsong. But by the end of day one of my hike, I started to get a little antsy. I had covered 12 miles and still had so much time to burn before dark. I pumped four liters of water through my filter. I reorganized everything in my pack. I methodically searched for the flattest place to pitch my tent. With hours of daylight left, I began to read the only material I'd brought along, a massive map of the northern half of the Frank. All summer, I had made a habit of scouring the map for names that seemed to tell stories, and tonight was no exception. I lay in my tent and wondered about the stories behind Barking Fox Lake, Mosquito Ridge, and Holy Terror Creek. On day two, I rose at first light and continued west along Big Creek. A few miles into the day, I followed the trail around a bend and saw a bridge ahead. I made it to the halfway point of the journey. I snapped a quick photo. I crossed the bridge and happily hiked on for six more miles before calling it a day. But that evening, something strange happened. Instead of the sun setting in the west, it was setting in what I was sure was the south. It made no sense. I suppressed the creeping feeling that I was in the wrong place. Maybe there was some sharp curve in the trail that I hadn't noticed. Less than an hour into day three, the trail dead-ended at a rocky beach on the creek. This was odd. The Big Creek Trail wasn't supposed to ford the water. I paced up and down the rocky beach, looking for a place where the trail would loop back into the trees on my side of the creek. Nothing. I felt a small flutter of anxiety deep in my gut. I backtracked a little. Nothing. 
Finally, I decided to proceed where I thought the trail should be. I pushed on, bushwhacking through thick willows. When I arrived at a large meadow, I scoured every corner for an established trail and found nothing. I tried a few game trails, but all of them dead-ended and I backtracked to the meadow. I was frustrated, on edge even, but I wasn't worried. If I had been hiking with a partner, I'd probably be laughing a little. It was the kind of terrain where I couldn't possibly be that far from the actual trail. I would run into it eventually. The going was rough. I scrambled through talus, navigated around massive log jams, and got my feet wet crossing some creeks. As the hours wore on, I started to get a little nervous. In the most rugged spots, I'd stop to catch my breath and holler things like, Hello? On the extraordinarily slim chance that the trail was right there and that someone was on it. After a tricky crossing of an overgrown creek, I emerged from dense vegetation into a debris pile of rusted pipes, broken ceramics, and raised wooden beams. It was a flattened cabin, a peopled place. The anxiety of isolation gave way to relief and curiosity as I imagined the lives of homesteaders here a hundred years ago. If they had survived this landscape, surely I would too. Just beyond the cabin, I found myself on a grassy flat high above the creek. It looked almost like an unmaintained airstrip. From there, I found an obvious trail, one with cairns. Finally, I exhaled in relief. I happily followed this rediscovered trail, amazed by how fast I could move when there was nothing in my way. Before I knew it, I was hiking parallel to a buck and rail fence. There was a large cabin in the background. I figured I must be getting into Edwardsburg, the tiny, remote village at the edge of the wilderness boundary where Walt will be picking me up first thing in the morning. I was making such good time that I took a break to eat a snack, dry out my socks, and watch a pair of ospreys circle their nest. I killed as much time as I could, almost dreading arriving at my airstrip. This was my chance to linger, my final goodbye with the Frank. When I started to move again, I expected that I had reached my destination in a matter of minutes. I was just beginning to second-guess my mileage estimate when I saw a small trail sign in the shadows up ahead. I sped up a little. And that's when I knew I was in trouble. The sign didn't say, Edwardsburg, one mile. It said Milk Creek Trail, and pointed to an overgrown, narrow path diverging to the left. Alarm bells started going off in my head. I had spent enough time studying the map to know exactly where I was, and it wasn't anywhere near where I was supposed to be. I was 10 miles up Monumental Creek, where there was not going to be any pilot picking me up. I was about an inch from the edge of my map, less than an hour from walking right off of it. In fact, I was about half a mile from one of my favorite places to imagine, Holy Terror Creek. Standing alone on the steep trail in dark, thick woods, the name now seemed apt. Of course it all made sense in retrospect. This was why the sun had set in the wrong place the night before. This was why the trail had seemed to ford the creek in a totally random spot. This was why I had felt an escalating sense of dread since crossing the pack bridge on Monumental Bar the day before. I was lost. Or at least I had been lost until running into this sign. I wasn't exactly lost anymore. I knew exactly where I was on the map. 
but it was most definitely not where I needed to be. What was I supposed to do? Hike all the way to the right airstrip, 25 miles away in 16 hours? If I did that, I'd be hiking in the dark, and I might not get there in time. The pilot might beat me to our meeting place. I knew it would cause others a lot of stress if Walt flew into our rendezvous point and I wasn't there. Being unaccounted for in the Frank seemed like a great way to become the subject of an unflattering local news segment. Alternatively, I could try to follow a shortcut back to the research station where I started. The idea of being back at the station in a few hours was really tempting, but definitely a bad idea. The shortcut followed an unmaintained trail up and over a pretty steep ridge. If hiking all the way to the correct airstrip was a bad idea, the shortcut was an even worse idea. Of course, there was one other option. I could call for help. Cell phones don't work in the Frank, but I had a spot tracker with me. The spot is a small satellite device that lets you send out pre-programmed messages and your location to a few predetermined contacts. You can either send out a message that says you're okay, an SOS to search and rescue, or a request for non-emergency help from your contacts. The spot can be a life-saving thing if you're in a bad situation, but it's not like a phone. You can't make calls and you can't type in custom messages when you're out in the field. All you have are your pre-programmed buttons. In other words, I couldn't let Walt know that I'd taken the wrong trail and ask him to pick me up here instead. All I could say was, please help. I sat down and thought about what to do. I was tired from bushwhacking most of the day. I was hugely embarrassed at my error, the fact that I had walked miles off course without even knowing it. I was also kind of freaked out. I felt overwhelmed by being on my own out here. The aloneness was somehow paralyzing. I remember thinking, I just want to talk this all through with someone. Companionship would have made this feel like an adventure rather than a disaster. I also realized with a sinking feeling that this mess was no one's fault but my own. When trips had gone wrong in the past, there was at least a shared sense of responsibility for bad decisions. And there was camaraderie about finding a solution. Whereas now, I was totally on my own. Hey. It's Willow. We'll hear what happened to Allison in just a moment. But first, I wanted to let you know about two things that will make your next backpacking trip better. They won't keep you from getting lost, but they will make your time outdoors much more enjoyable. So, let's face it, a lot of backpacking food is kind of awful. But it doesn't have to be. One of our sponsors for this episode is Monte Boca. They believe people should be able to eat well, even on the side of a mountain. So they've come up with a whole library of trail recipes that are fast, easy, and tasty. I decided to try one of their recipes. It's called the Green Goddess Grain Bowl. It was quick and easy to make. The ingredients were readily available at my local grocery store. And when I tasted it, mmm, oh man, that's delicious. Okay, I've definitely never eaten anything this good while backpacking. 
In fact, it was so good that I'm probably going to make it at home the next time I have guests over. Monte Boca has more than 100 trail-tested recipes to choose from, all searchable by meal type, dietary restrictions, weight, etc. Their meals require no pre-prep and no dehydrating. You can do everything on your camp stove or, in some cases, with no stove at all. If you're looking for a stocking stuffer this holiday season, they have a new pocket-sized trail cookbook. You can check that out, plus see lots of other recipes and tips at montyboca.com. That's M-O-N-T-Y-B-O-C-A dot com. To sweeten the deal even more, you can get 15% off your purchase with the coupon code BOCA OUT THERE. That's B-O-C-A OUT THERE, all in caps. Monty Boca. Get outside, eat well, share the tasty experience. While we're on the subject of tasty things, another thing you should have on your radar is Kusa tea. Kusa makes premium instant tea. So I know instant beverages have a bit of a stigma. We tend to assume they don't taste very good. But I want you to set aside your assumptions for just a moment. Kusa tea, in my opinion, tastes better than the majority of bagged tea. That's Robin Shelley. She's in charge of marketing at Kusa. And she says one of the reasons Kusa tea tastes so good is that they're very particular about the ingredients they use. So when you're harvesting tea, there's different plucks. Um, We have what's called a second pluck, and it's just two leaves in the bud. So it's the sweetest, most tender, best prized part of the tea plant. Kusa sent me a bunch of samples of their tea, and it really does taste very good. And not just while camping. I've been drinking Kusa tea at home quite frequently. If you want to try out some free samples before you buy, just go to kusatea.fun slash out there. If you're ready to take the plunge and make a purchase, you can also get 25% off your entire order at that site. Again, that's kusatea.fun slash out there. C-U-S-A-T-E-A dot fun slash out there. And now back to our story. I thought through my options again. It was hard to imagine hiking all night without making things much worse. This was rugged terrain. The trails of the Frank weave across loose rock and through thick stands of burnt trees. This was not a place where I could just get in the zone and crank out 25 miles quickly, even if I wasn't tired. Even on the trail, there would be swift creeks to cross without bridges and lots of fallen trees to navigate around. It would be so easy to lose my footing in the dark and hurt myself even with a headlamp. On the other hand, I didn't want to use my spot to ask for a rescue. It wasn't like I had a broken ankle or anything. I felt like I should wait for things to really go sideways before asking for help. But I also knew that acting tough is a great way to get yourself hurt, or worse, in the wilderness. So I let go of my impulse to make myself look as capable as possible. I asked for help. I hiked back to the defunct airstrip and hit the help button on my spot. I knew that it would catch the station manager's attention and force them to open the link that showed my location on the map. And I hoped that hitting the help button on an airstrip 25 miles from where I was supposed to be would send a clear message. Please send Walt here instead. What I didn't expect was that my help message wouldn't send. 
it's normal in the Frank for a spot to take 10 or 15 minutes to be delivered. While it's sending, a little orange light blinks, letting you know that the device is working. When the light goes out, you know that the message reached the satellite. After pushing the help button, I watched my light blink for 10 minutes, then 20, then 45 minutes. I moved to the trail and tried again, but nothing. Eternal blinking. It's the equivalent of the MacBook's rainbow wheel of death. My anxiety was peaking. The orange light on my spot was still blinking after two hours. Message not sent. Sitting by myself and staring at the blinking light was torturous. I was freaked out and bored at the same time. There was nothing to do but wait, and there was no one to distract me from my churning thoughts. I started second-guessing my choice to hit the help button. I could have spent the last two hours hiking in the right direction instead of sitting here. My frenzied thoughts were interrupted by a sound unmistakable to anyone in the Frank. The sudden hum of an overhead Cessna. I shot out of the woods and back onto the airstrip. A small blue and white plane was circling the strip. It was Walt's plane. I ran back and forth on the grass, flailing my arms, trying to be as visible as possible. It's surprisingly hard to see someone on the ground, even when you're flying low. Walt circled me four or five times. But instead of landing, he continued on. Did he not see me somehow? Standing alone on a defunct airstrip in the middle of the Frank at dusk and watching my plane fly away. It's hard to express the precise combination of shock, resignation, and bemusement I felt. This was hands down the most alone I have ever felt, and not at all in a good way. And then, just minutes later, I thought I heard something. It seemed impossible, but there it was. Voices. A moment later, I saw two men walking toward me on the trail. It was Walt and Pete, one of the managers of the research station. I was baffled. Weren't they just in a plane above me? A plane that didn't land? Despite my bewilderment, my heart felt instantly lighter. They answered my questions before I could even ask. That cabin I had cruised by has a private airstrip behind it, one that's way easier to land on. When I had gone by the cabin again during my backtracking, I walked up to it and found it locked. Later, Walt told me that he was actually scheduled to fly the owner in the next day. If I had gotten lost just 24 hours later, I probably would have been invited in for a cold drink and the use of their satellite phone. Walt and Pete explained that my spot message had sent after all. In fact, they'd gotten about a hundred of them. My spot kept blinking because it was sending the help message continuously, a quirk of the device that none of us had known about. While I was freaking out that it wasn't sending, they were freaking out because they thought I was pushing the help button nonstop. Walt and Pete packed everything they thought they might need, not knowing what had caused me to veer off course. They came in ready to dress wounds, splint fractures, 
or cool me off from heat stroke. Strapped into the back seat of the Cessna, my body became reacquainted with the comfort of soft leather and the roar of an engine after 70 days off the grid. Twilight turned to full dark before long, and the only light between Monumental Creek and town was the faint glow from a remote fire lookout. I wondered what the person manning the lookout must have thought of our little plane going by in the dark, and whether they were enjoying their solitude or wishing for company. Now, two years later, I was back at Monumental Creek. Seeing the place again with my friend Arabelle was not exactly what I expected. Some parts of the trip fit my perception of Monumental Creek as hopelessly rugged and remote. The drive to the trailhead had been long and a little dicey. It put the first scratch in my new Subaru. We didn't see any other hikers. We had to take our boots off six times where the trail forded the icy creek. But even at our easy pace, we covered a lot of miles in very little time. What I had remembered as a deeply forested place was open and bright. The trail I'd remembered as steep was perfectly flat. Being lost, isolated there. It had changed my perception of this place. This little piece of the Frank that had haunted me for two years was actually quite lovely. How could my perceptions have been so wrong? Fresh out of the Frank, I was pretty hesitant to tell this story. It was hard to see any conclusion to it other than, I am an idiot who doesn't belong in the backcountry. The choice to use my spot or to hike all night continued to vex me, even when it didn't matter anymore. I would lie awake at night months later, trying to calculate if I could have made it to the right airstrip in time. It took a long time to forgive myself for getting lost. Actually, the image of myself flailing around on a deserted airstrip, trying to will a plane to land, it still makes my cheeks a little pink. But now, two years later, I realized the experience taught me something important. It taught me that for all my introverted tendencies, my thirst for solitude has its limits. Sure, it's wonderful to be by myself on a mountaintop when the weather is great and everything is going well. But as soon as things start to go wrong, human contact is actually pretty important. And not just to physically rescue us. We need the emotional support of companionship. Without it, the woods become foreboding. Things that are totally doable seem completely out of reach, and everything takes on an immense level of urgency. That doesn't mean we should never go into the backcountry alone. On the contrary, solo trips can be wonderful. But as someone who structures her days around time to recharge alone, it's helpful to remind myself that in times of crisis, even the most intense introverts turn out to be social creatures. When I planned the fateful hike from wilderness to not wilderness, I had anticipated the wrong moment of change, from backcountry me to frontcountry me. The real shift came years later, standing again at the Milk Creek Trail sign, this time with Arabelle, 
feeling a little silly as I described to her how different the place felt, now that I was no longer alone. That was Allison Fowle. She's an educator and writer living in Boise, Idaho. Before you go, a couple of announcements. First of all, in honor of Small Business Saturday, we will be offering 25% off all out there merchandise this Saturday only. We just got a shipment of brand new merch, and let me tell you, this stuff is nice. We have beautiful new pullovers, we have new colors of t-shirts, both long-sleeved and short-sleeved, and we have the softest, coziest hoodies ever. If you want to take a look, head over to our website, outtherepodcast.com, and click on the Merch tab. Again, everything will be 25% off this Saturday. The second announcement is that December 3rd is Giving Tuesday. Giving Tuesday is a day when people all over the world are encouraged to do good in their communities and give to causes they care about. Here at Out There, we believe strongly that women and girls should have a chance to get outdoors and follow their passions. So, we will be making a donation to a nonprofit called She Jumps, which is committed to increasing the participation of women and girls in outdoor activities. She Jumps offers free and low-cost education for women and girls from all backgrounds, with the goal of fostering confidence, leadership, and connection to nature. How much will we be donating? That depends on you. We'll donate 5% of all new listener gifts that come in between now and Giving Tuesday. So, what that means is that if you become a patron of Out There between now and December 3rd, we'll give 5% of your first month's pledge to She Jumps. If you're already a patron and you decide to increase your pledge, we'll give 5% of that increase to She Jumps. So basically what this means is that by contributing to Out There this week, you'll be helping this podcast and supporting a good cause. To get in on the fun, head over to patreon.com slash outtherepodcast. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform for creative endeavors. It lets you make monthly contributions to projects you care about, like this podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash outtherepodcast. You can also get there by going to our website, outtherepodcast.com. Just click the support tab. The final thing I wanted to say is thank you to our presenting sponsor. This episode comes to you with support from Parks Project. As I mentioned at the top of the show, they're on a mission to leave public lands better than we found them. Parks Project organizes volunteer events, and they also sell apparel and accessories to help pay for vital projects in national parks and other public lands. So far, Parks Project has contributed over half a million dollars to important projects on public lands, and they've logged more than 3,000 volunteer hours. You, too, can help take care of our national treasures at parksproject.us. For 15% off your order, just enter the coupon code OUTTHERE at checkout. Again, that's parksproject.us, coupon code OUTTHERE. 
That's it for this episode. Our strategic advisor is Alex Eggerking. Our advertising manager is Jessica Taylor. Laura Johnston heads up our ambassador program. And our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. Happy Thanksgiving. And as always, have a beautiful day. Be bold. Go outside and find your dreams. Thank you.